We're going through the book of Hebrews. We've made it to verse 4. We're going to finish up this chapter, taking it down to verse 14. Um, this is, the title of study is Jesus Greater Than Angels. A reminder that the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, although I would lean towards the Apostle Paul, is writing to a group, group of believing Jews who are finding it very difficult to leave um, all of the traditions, all of the uh, experiences, the sights, the sounds, the smell of the temple, um, the, the, the law that they had grown up on and that the Lord has now come and fulfilled that. All of these are difficult things for them. And so the writer is laying before them an argument that says, but just consider how Jesus is greater than or better than. As a matter of fact, if you, we're going to find the word better used at least 14, excuse me, 12 times um, in the New King James, 12 times the word better is used. So that, I mean, that kind of tells you what the book is about, right? He's trying to say, hey, Jesus is better than all of this stuff. It all was looking forward to him. Let's go ahead and uh, begin taking a look at this. Got a, kind of a lengthy introduction. Um, as we move into this section that's going to be about angels, I mean, you can see this in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels. So why a discussion about angels? Why is this an important point to make that Jesus is better than the angels? And probably it's connected to the, uh, the teaching we have. Um, there's a few places. I'll give you one of them, Galatians 3.19. And it talks about how the angels were part of um, uh, mediating the, uh, the covenant to Moses. So Galatians 3.19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So the angels had a part to play in the delivering of the law to Moses. And so for them, like, listen, this, this covenant we have, it is from God, but angel, even angels delivered this and so there was a, a connection, it would seem, that they, they had. Um, we're, you know, we were left to make you know, a, our own kind of educated guess on this, but based upon what we know of the role of angels in the giving of the law, that seems like a pretty um, reasonable thing. You also can find some other references um, to this in the Old Testament. So Psalm 68, verse 17, um, Acts 7, 38, two more references. It talks about the angels with the law. But there's another point that maybe is uh, relevant to this discussion about angels. And that is uh, angels um, were being worshipped in the first century world. And um, whether or not that is what they're thinking about, it doesn't seem likely to me because these are, these are believing Jews. So I, it doesn't seem like this is probably their issue. But in the backdrop of the culture and in other churches, this was an issue. And so, for example, Colossians 2.18 says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. So this was an issue that Paul had to address in other places, if indeed he is the author of Hebrews. Galatians 1.18, again, Paul writing says, But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. And you can kind of see how that kind of ties in. Well, the angels are bringing this message. The angels brought the, the, the law to Moses, and now others are saying, well, listen, angels brought this other message to us. He says, well, if it's different than what you've received, then let it be accursed. I mean, this is kind of the idea 
that you, you see behind um, the Mormons was saying that, you know, Joseph received um, these golden plates and, the, you know, the angel Moroni was a part of it, which is to add some weight to the communication. We don't believe this is true, but you can at least understand why you add angels into that discussion because it makes it sound more compelling. So this was an issue that was, was going on. And so Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is um, greater than the angels, and we're going to see that laid out for us here. So practical takeaways. Um, knowing Jesus' greatness, we should worship him. We should remain steadfast, and we should be looking to him to help us. So these are some of the points we're going to try and develop as we go through. It really is a technical passage. It's a difficult passage. And if I'm just being you know, candid with you, I can read this passage and study it and get it you know, pretty, you know, understood in my own mind, but if I come back a year later, I'm going to have, I mean, this is a difficult passage. It's not one that just reads super easy. Uh, the points are, are rather nuanced, and, and yet in all of this, we see a great picture of the Lord. And as I was thinking about, well, you know, Lord, what are we going to take away from this passage today? And I, the one thing I hope we really walk away with is, um, we see the greatness of who our God is, our Savior Jesus Christ, and we want to worship him, and we want to remain committed and connected with him above anything or anyone else. You'll hear me make those points as we go. But let's go ahead and, and, and just start working our way through. Verses 4 and 5, we read, Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the first point is, he has a greater name. Well, this name also indicates a standing, a position, a relationship. It also speaks to him of his uh, identity. He is divine. He is the son of God. Um, I just would encourage you to, to remember this. Whenever you see the phrase son of God, that is a clear statement to the deity of Jesus. Remember the enemies of Jesus, when he um, identified himself as the son of God, they said that they wanted to, they took up, wanted to take up stones and to kill him because they, he made himself what with God? Equal. So make no mistake about it. The phrase son of God is supercharged with the understanding of the identity of Jesus. He's got this greater name. The name is Son, which speaks to us of his deity. Now, Jesus has the name Son, but angels have the name Servant. They serve at the Lord's direction. We'll come across this point a few times. But what is meant by this phrase, today I have begotten you? Because when we hear this, it kind of, it's like, well, why today? I mean, he's the eternal one. He's always been the, you know, uh, divine. Why are we saying today? What is it about the time frame that is, that the author of Hebrews, quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, is cluing in on? And there is a specific day, and there is, a, I would say, a specific event that he is zeroing in on. And it has to do with the death, burial, and, and most significantly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's that day. It's that day 
that we read, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, again, that he is diminishing the deity or the, uh, the glory of Jesus by making a statement that there was a day where he was begotten um, is not his point. Just let's be reminded of verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, he's the express image. He's already established the fact that Jesus bears the glory of God Almighty. So that's not what's in his mind. It's, there's something else going on here. And again, that verse, I think what will help us is that we see that after Jesus had purged our sins, he sat down of the right hand on the majesty on high. And I believe this is the day that we're getting connected with here. It's that last work of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father. That is the day that is being referenced. So let me give you some verses that will hopefully help us to see this so clearly. John chapter 12 verses 23 and then verses 27 and 28 speaks about a specific, a specific day when Jesus receives a specific type of glory. But Jesus answered them saying, and this is just hours before he is going to be arrested, days before he's going to be arrested and crucified. But Jesus answered and said, uh, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Well, what is the event? He's about to go to the cross. He's about to be buried. He's about to rise from the dead. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Referencing, I'm going to say, that day when he is going to fulfill the mission for which he has come. A little clearer, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says of Jesus, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. When was he declared? At the resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God. Let's go on to Acts 13.33. God has fulfilled this for, uh, uh, fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up, resurrected Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, the one we're considering here in Hebrews, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So in Acts 13, 33, Luke makes a strong connection here with Jesus at the son of God and the resurrection. It's not that he wasn't the son before, but there was a certain fulfillment that took place, a plan that had been in place all along. Let me read to you a quote from F.F. Um, F. Bruce on this point. He says, the eternity of Christ's divine sonship is not brought into question by the view. So he's eternally had this role. That's not brought into question. The suggestion rather is that he who was the son of God from everlasting entered into the full exercise of all the prerogatives implied by his sonship when he, when after his suffering, had proved the completeness of his obedience, he was raised to the Father's right hand. So the, he's always held this position, but there are some things that he fulfilled and did in the eternal plan of God, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, being exalted to the right hand of the Father, that gave him full prerogatives to 
to minister in that way. That is what is in, in view. Now, Psalm 2-7, the one that's being quoted there in Hebrews, if you go back to the original context, you read a couple of verses around it, you're going to see that this is referencing a time when the Son is going to rule over the nations. And so I think as you, you read in verse 7, probably verse 8, it talks about the inheritance that he, the Son, is going to receive that he might rule over the nations. So the thought is something like this. You're thinking about leaving the Christian faith because the law was delivered by angels? Well, Jesus, he's, he's greater than the angels. His name is greater. I mean, he is the son of God. And not only that, he is, there's a day where the, that, that the father brought him into the fullness of, of those rights because he finished the work of redemption. Therefore, now he could be able to rule and reign over mankind. That was part of how God um, on this earth and, and sitting on the throne of David, this is how God had worked it together. So it's a, it's a nuanced point. He's eternal, he's divine, he's eternally the son, but there was an aspect of his sonship that was uh, realized when he fulfilled the mission that the father had sent the son on. And that happens after his resurrection. So this is the point. So I think the thing to consider is if he's going to rule and reign, if he, according to Psalm 2, verse 7, and what it implies is he has this authority to rule and reign, why in the world are you going to walk away from him? Where are you going to walk away to? He's the one that's going to dominate the nations, and Israel was looking for that Messiah that would come and would rule over. The prophets had talked about it. And he's like, well, Jesus is that one and you're not going to come to him. Then where are you going to find this deliverance that, um, that the son is going to bring? The next point is in verse six, where we see that he is also to be worshiped. These points just roll one into another. It says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So Jesus being this firstborn, and the command is that the angels should worship him. The Old Testament is super clear, uh, as well as the New Testament, that God prohibits worship of anybody but himself. You cannot worship anyone else. So, Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The Lord is jealous for worship. You cannot worship anyone else. This is a clear statement. You can find times in the Bible, um, Revelation 19, Revelation 22, where uh, John or others bow down before the angels of heaven, and um, they said, don't worship us. Don't worship us. Please don't do that. We're just men like you. And they referred the worship back to Jesus. And so Revelation 19:10, I fell at his feet to worship him, an angel, but he said to me, don't do that. See that you don't do, don't worship me. Angels understand that only God can receive worship and they never received worship. Even men understood this. When Peter had healed the man at the gate, beautiful, and they began to look at him, he said, why are you looking at me as though I've done this by my own power? I mean, it's, it's God. I don't get any glory for this. So men and angels, when walking in obedience to the Lord, never receive worship. But Jesus here has the angels of God worshiping him. You, you're hung up on angels and the role that they played in the old covenant? Well, guess what? 
These angels, they're caught up in Jesus. I mean, after they, while they were in his presence, he sent them on the errand. And when they got back, they worshipped him. They are worshipping him. Why would you cease to worship them because of these angels? And throughout Jesus' life and ministry, we see him receiving worship. I'm going to give you four different examples of this in the Gospels. Matthew 8, 2. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You read on, Jesus does not correct him, and he answers his request, and he blesses him. He interacts with him. Matthew 9, 18, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler, Jairus is his name, came and worshipped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. He does not rebuke him for the worship. He actually engages with the man. He goes to his house and he raises his daughter from the dead. Jesus receives worship. Matthew 14, Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. See, do you see how the worship and the statement, you are the Son of God, go together? You only worship God. So, I mean, this, this phrase, Son of God, it is synonymous with speaking of the divinity, the person of, of God. And so Jesus uh, does not rebuke them, does not stop them as all angels do and all men and women of God would do. Matthew 28, 9, last one. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. So throughout the scriptures, Jesus is worshiped by man and here we read that the angels of God worship him. So clearly, he is better than the angels. And you're getting hung up on this point. But another kind of difficulty in this passage for us to consider is in the in beginning of verse 6, it says, But when he again brings the firstborn. And so many will seize upon this phrase firstborn and say, See, he is a created being. He is a created being. So, um, you know, you know, they may ask you, you know, are you the firstborn in your family? No, that would be my sister. Okay, well, you know, firstborn. I mean, if you're firstborn, then you've been created. And they will make this statement. And yet we need to understand what this word means. You know, when you look up a word in the dictionary, you, do, you rarely do you find just one meaning for it. You can find one, two, three, you know, depending on the word. It could have multiple meanings. Well, that's the case with this word for firstborn. It has two main meanings. One is birth order, and that's what most of our minds go to when we hear the word firstborn. But I'll show you from Scripture that clearly it has a secondary meaning. And the secondary meaning, which is being uh, uh, deployed by the author of Hebrews, is that of rank or priority or preeminence. So let me give you the example. Remember Joseph, Old Testament, he has two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh. Which one is firstborn? Well, I want to give you two different verses. Psalm 31 verse 9 says, They shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Just Jeremiah 31 verse 9. Now Genesis 41 Verses 51 and 52, follow it. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God 
has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of affliction. So of these two sons, um, they both become tribes in, in Israel, but Ephraim becomes the tribe that is preeminent. And, you know, really, I mean, they, they, Ephraim almost becomes synonymous at a point in time of history with Israel. You referred to Israel, uh, Ephraim, and you could be referring to Israel because they had such a prominence. And so uh, Ephraim does become the more preeminent of the two sons and even among the tribes of Israel. So when we read that Jesus is firstborn here, don't think of birth order. Um, don't think of a created being, but think of one that holds rank and priority. One that is preeminent in overall. I'll give you one more example of this word, and it's used of Jesus himself. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Is he the first one to ever be resurrected from the dead? He's not. He's the first one to ever be resurrected from the dead, never to die again. But he's not the first one to be resurrected from the dead. We have stories of this, accounts of this in the Old Testament. We read it and mentioned one account with Jairus' daughter dying and, he, and Jesus raising her from the dead. But he says that Jesus is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And so you can kind of see the context there a little bit, can't you? Because it talks about Jesus being the preeminent one over the one that's first in rank. He's and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So there is no problem here when we read about Jesus being firstborn. If we understand the meaning of the word, the meaning is he is the preeminent one. He is the one that holds rank. He is the one that holds authority. Well, this preeminent one, what do all the angels of God do? They worship him. So you can see the argument that he's laying out. You should be worshiping him too. You should be engaging in this worship. And we are those that ought to be giving the Lord worship in our life. We ought to be giving him. We, have, we opened up with a, a time of corporate worship together. This is a chance for us, not just the angels of God. This is a chance for us to worship him and to give him glory and to give him honor. You know, whether it's, you know, and we make such a big deal about music. And I mean, everybody's got their own music thing. This is the best music. This is the best music. You ever have somebody go, this is the greatest song ever. You're like, no, it's not. That song stinks. You know, it's like, you know, the greatest song ever is. They're like, oh, no way. I mean, we are so opinionated about musical style. Well, it's no different in the church. Some like the old hymns. Some like, you know, contemporary worship. Somebody, some like, you know, the new uh, hymns. And I mean, we have all different kinds of opinions. Some don't want any music. Um, they think it should be a cappella, you know. So all kinds of opinions come. But, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the kind of music you like, the kind of music you wouldn't go out and pay for. If it is giving glory to the Lord, we should all quickly engage in worship. God forbid there should ever come back the Gregorian chants. But if they do, <laughs> we worship the Lord because he's worthy of it. The musical style, that's, that's more, I mean, the, the musicians are playing unto the Lord. I know this. But, you know, the way we often interact with it, it's just our, well, I like that. I like this. I don't like that instrument. We, I wish we could hear more of this. I hear more of that. You know, somebody makes a decision and, and we go with it. And that happens at any given church. 
But he's worthy of worship. He, he is the preeminent one. And so when we come, we should praise him with our whole heart. I love what the, the psalmist says. A praise is awaiting you in Zion, O Lord. Well, praise is awaiting the Lord wherever a person is. And we're in Lynchburg today. So today, the Lord, he is deserving of worship from us. We move on, verse 7. It says, end of the angels. He says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So the idea here is there's, there's speed, there's a, 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 a passion with which angels go, and they serve and do what the Lord is telling them to do. So the point is, he's greater in authority. He gets to tell the angels what to go and do. And when, they, when they're told they go do it with like a flame of fire, I mean, there's passion, there's, there's a, a burning behind what they're doing. They are faithful servants, diligent servants, passionate servants of the Lord. And it should be the same for us. Jesus has a right to tell us what to do with our time, our lives, our money, our talents. Go and do it, spend it, live it this way. And our response should be, we should be on fire to do that. We should rush to the, the thing that God calls us to do. Jesus is worthy of that. And he has the ability to go tell angels what to do. So therefore, Maybe if angels are obeying, maybe you ought to be obeying as well. Verses 8 and 9, we're going to see that he is God. This very well may be one of the most straightforward statements about the deity of Jesus. It's not the only one, but it may be the straightforward, most straightforward. Look at this, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. All right, God the Father is speaking. And to the Son, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. It's you are God and you are eternal, says God the Father. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So Jesus, not only was he the eternal one, not only is he the divine one, but he is also one who has a righteous kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He is God, but aren't you glad that we serve a king who has a righteous kingdom? He is righteous himself, and he has a righteous kingdom. He loves that which is holy and pure, and he despises, he hates that which is ungodly, that which is lawless. You know, when we, you may find a candidate, you've got elections coming up, you may find a candidate that you really like. And maybe they're a, a Christian man or woman, and they're standing for biblical truths, and they seem to have a, a, a mind on them and a heart around them that would, would lead them to make righteous decisions in legislation and carrying out that office. And that's something to be excited about when, they have, when it comes around. But we still know that they don't have the kind of righteousness that the Lord does. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we are under the rule and reign of the Lord upon this earth and that righteousness abounds, that that is the norm? And then when we get into the eternal state, there is no rebellion. There is no sin. It is only going to be righteous. And so the, for Jesus, he loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness. Our culture is trying to push us back to the place where we hate 
righteousness, and we love lawlessness. Can I ask you just dig your heels in and be super, super stubborn like Jesus? And don't go there. Well, you know, but you, we've got to be nice to people. Okay? I mean, if you feel it necessary to say that, yes, you're right. We do need to be nice and loving and kind. Like Jesus is nice and loving and kind and died on the cross for sinners. The one who died for sinners hates sin. And we are made to feel like if we, have a, if we, if we say what the Lord has to say about holiness and living life, that somehow if we disagree with how somebody else is that we hate them. No, we don't allow them to put that on you. I mean, it's just like, well, you know, you just hate people. Say, no, that's your own thinking. I am not saying that. I would be happy to help this person out in any way. But I don't approve of things that cause Jesus to die on the cross. I mean, how can we be neutral? And this is, I think, maybe the mediating position that we're trying to find as believers. And I'm telling you, this is a big bear trap. We can't take a mediating position of, well, you know, I love righteousness and, well, lawlessness, well, you know, people got to make their own decisions. Okay, yeah, people do have to make their own decisions. But that statement is, uh, expresses an unwillingness to have the same attitude, attitude towards lawlessness that Jesus does. Do you think you're more righteous than Jesus? Do you think you're more righteous than Jesus because you would say, I don't hate lawlessness? If you do, you need to come off your high horse. You are not more loving than Jesus. You do not love people more than he does. You do not have a better attitude towards sinners than he does. When the woman caught in the very act of adultery was brought before Jesus, he said, where are your accusers? She said, there are none. He says, neither do I accuse you. And then what does he say? Go and sin no more. He loves the sinner, but he hates that which destroys the sinner too. And that's lawlessness. I mean, come on. Are you a parent? If you love your kids, then there are certain things that you hate because you know of the damage and the pain and the hurt it can come, that can come to them. So when we read, you have loved righteousness, you've hated um, lawlessness, understand that it's to be emulated. Well, maybe that's Jesus. Well, okay, then I got another verse for you. Commandment, it's found in, in Romans. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So Jesus models it and we're exhorted to walk in it. He is God, he is righteous, he hates lawlessness, but he loves the sinner and he draws them to himself. So what is our righteousness like? What is our love for righteousness like? Do we esteem it? Are you loving righteousness or are you a tolerant yet or are you tolerating carnality? You can't love righteousness if you tolerate carnality. What drives you and motivates you to do the righteous thing, to do the holy thing? When you do sin, are you broken over it or do you seek to justify it? How you answer these questions all will tell you whether you're loving righteousness and hating lawlessness. But he is God. He is the eternal one. He is the righteous, eternal God who sits upon the throne. That is Jesus. That's a pretty good resume. That's a pretty good resume. Who's your God? He is the righteous one. He is eternal. He is the one who is divine and sits upon the throne. So 
For these guys, they're thinking about walking away from that. To who? To what? what I mean, if you, if you put the angel's resume up there, well, look at them. They're beneath the Lord in every way. So there is this challenge that is going on. Let's uh, begin to wrap this up. We've got two more quick points, verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. He is eternal and unchanging. What were these Hebrews going to go to that would be eternal and unchanging? Everything that they would turn to was going to be temporal and subject to change. Even those heavens which seem so permanent to us, one day the eternal unchanging one is just going to take him like a handkerchief and he's going to fold it up and he's going to set it aside. Have you ever read Genesis and thought, man, I wish I could watch creation? Hang tight, it's coming. There will be a day in the future, after the millennial reign, as we head into the eternal state, when the Lord will fold up this universe as we know it, and he's going to do it all over again. I'm looking forward to that day. I think that's going to be pretty awesome. But the point that's being made here is, even that which we look at and seems so stationary and, and permanent in our existence is going to pass away, but the one who made it is going to remain the same. He's unchanging. People around you change. Maybe you've been hurt deeply by their change, but the Lord will never do that. He remains the same. And then lastly, verses 13 and 40, uh, 14, he, is, he has a greater rule, which is very similar to some of these other points. It says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? So again, the Father's saying this to, to Jesus. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? So angels go forth, and they have a job description to minister to those that are getting saved and are saved. Uh, so he has a greater rule than they. Um, he's going to be over the entire world, and all the enemies are going to be subject to him. That day is coming. But these angels... That seemed to be such a big deal to those that he is writing to. He says, listen, they are there for you. You are not there for them. God has sent them forth to serve you. Daniel chapter 6 verse 22 is an example. Daniel speaking says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. So that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. We see angels you know, doing jailbreaks for, you know, the apostles, right? I mean, they are engaged in serving. The, the simple closing point is this. The Lord is so for you. He has a whole created order out there called angels that he uses to serve you. How he does it, to me, is we get examples of it. But it's somewhat mysterious. And even the Bible talks about, hey, you could entertain angels and not be aware of it. So they, we could have these moments where we've actually been ministered to by an angel and we are not even realizing in that moment that it is an angel. What well, does this mean we all have guardian angels? Well, I mean, I don't know if they follow you around 24-7, but I do know this. Whenever Jesus thinks you need their aid and assistance, he sends them and they burst out of there with their wings on fire. 
headed towards that saint who needs to be ministered to. Now, we don't elevate them above it. They, you know what? They are the servants of the Lord. But we get to receive uh, ministry even from them. So this is the author's attempt to say, you hung up on angels? Well, angels are hung up on Jesus. So don't let that be the issue. As we close, we need to hear the great one. We need to emulate the great one. We need to worship the great one. And we need to make certain we don't leave the great one. Somebody on social media does not have a resume like this. Somebody who spent too much time at a liberal Bible college does not have a resume like this. They're going to pass away. They're not going to be around. They, can't, they don't have angels they can deploy into service for you. They've not purged your sins. They have not created this world. Jesus did all that. And Jesus loves you. If you leave him, you leave salvation. You have nowhere else to go. So may you remain steadfast in your faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your love, your kindness. Lord, as we read of who you are and what you have done for us, Lord, we do want to just worship you. We want to give you glory. We want to give you honor. You are worthy. And Lord, if there be any heart in here who's even has the slightest thought of, am I going to continue on? I pray you would just convince them today, Lord, of your greatness, your love, and, and the future that is to come where you will rule and reign and that they will just remain steadfast in you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.